So uh, it's a pleasure to be here at Pain Week, and um, uh, today I'm going to talk to you about uh, different neuromodulatory therapies. And um, first of all, I have nothing to disclose for this talk. And uh, the learning objectives, as stated, are to understand a definition and history of neuromodulation, identify several neuromodulatory modalities, and explain the potential brain mechanisms supporting uh, TVNS transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation for migraines. So um, just to say up front, while I'm going to cover a few different neuromodulatory therapies during this talk, um, I wanted to um, sort of have the opportunity to share with you some of the exciting research and some of the recent findings that we have hot off the press on um, uh, transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation for migraines, and so I wanted to focus on that for the talk. So first, let's start with a definition. Uh, neuromodulation, uh, as defined by the uh, INS, the International uh, Neuromodulation Society, which is a, a fairly large and well-established organization at this point. Um, neuromodulation is defined by them as the alteration of nerve activity through the delivery of electrical stimulation or chemical agents to targeted sites of the body. And while this is a definition, I would say probably that the bulk of neuromodulatory therapies involve electrical stimulation. And um, that's really mostly what I'll be talking about in this talk. So the history of uh, neuromodulation really dates um, to uh, many hundreds of years ago. Um, it's hard to know, you know, there's some history of exactly where these types of these ideas and these types of therapies really began. But uh, we know that um, from, the, um, from the expansion of the European powers into the New World, into the Americas, um, they came into contact with uh, different um, fauna, different flora in the new land, and uh, some different, uh, anthropologically, some different uh, medical treatments. So for example, electrical eels in South America, in the Amazon, um, have been used uh, to treat headache. This is a, an excerpt from uh, 1762 uh, by a Dutchman named Van der Lott. When a slave complains of a bad headache, he has them put one of their hands on their head and the other on the fish, which is an eel, and they thereby will be helped immediately without exception, without exception. Um, so this is the idea that there are certain fish that can generate electricity, and this electricity um, somehow um, the native societies in these places learn to use for their uh, medicinal qualities. So this is one of those uh, electrical eels, Electrophorus electricus, and uh, these guys can discharge up to 600 volts of electricity, which is pretty substantial. So um, as industrialization then uh, came to, um, to Europe uh, first, in the 18th century, uh, the idea of the electrical eels, which are you know, living, kind of squishy, and hard to really um, train very well, um, got replaced with uh, the idea that we can have these electrical machines that can be used uh, to treat chronic pain, to treat different illnesses. So um, this is uh, now 1788, also uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, you can see the idea of some of these devices and designs for electrical machines. Uh, here in the 19th century, uh, there was further quote-unquote development. I put that in quotes. For example, the hydroelectric bath. Basically, you're you know, sitting in a bath, and then a, a hairdryer drops in it, and this is a therapy. Um, was used uh, to treat headache. So this is uh, 1887, Lewandowski. Um, so, but the point is that I guess not so many people were killed by these technologies because they kept pervading and pervasive. And um, some, enough people were helped by them 
that uh, there was a development of uh, electrical therapies um, targeting really uh, peripheral nerves in the body in order to treat uh, chronic pain and other disorders as well. So, of course, there's limitations of early neuromodulatory therapies. You know, for example, this was uh, not particularly spatially localized. So, you know, when you're lying in a bath and uh, some electricity gets uh, attached to it, um, it's not very spatially localized, at least not based on any known innervation of cranial or peripheral uh, nervous system that we know of. And also, I think it's really important to note, uh, and this, this was noted uh, a long time ago when these therapies were first being developed, that there's a, a strong psychological component, uh, psychological modulation of effects. Uh, this is before even the concept of a placebo um, came into uh, scientific research. And so this is the, uh, the German physician, Paul Mobius, um, and this is a quote, there is no other way out, it concerns suggestion. Uh, very German, very you know, direct. I have occasionally pointed to the fact that in mild migraine attacks, psychic influences are important. Therefore, it is obvious that in such type of attack, electric manipulations will bring immediate well-being, in particular if it is carried out by an appropriate personality. And really what he's talking about is the placebo effect and the idea that we know that um, from a, a placebo research standpoint, which has uh, really uh, come up in leaps and bounds, I would say, in the, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, that um, there's graded effect of placebos. And uh, not all placebos are created equally. A, a device will have a much stronger placebo effect than a pill. Surgery will have much stronger placebo effects than a device or a pill. So there's gradations, and a lot of these devices, they, they look very fancy, and they will have strong placebo effects. So it's something to keep in mind, you know, also for myself as a researcher in trying to develop some of these technologies to um, control studies as best as possible. And I think for those of you in the audience who are clinicians and are applying some of these technologies, it's something to keep in mind as well. And while this is not the, the topic of my talk about the usage of placebo in clinical practice, I'm not necessarily saying not to use it. I'm just saying it's something that's a, a common ongoing debate. So let's get into um, some uh, potential devices. So, so today's non-invasive neuromodulatory technologies are um, you know, maybe fancier. So they include a transcutaneous uh, magnetic stimulation, or TMS, or RTMS. Uh, here's an example of a coil that's placed over the, um, the head of, of, the, of the patient. And really, you're targeting specific brain regions uh, with this technology. Um, transcranial direct current stimulation, TDCS, uh, you may have heard of, is another modality where you effectively have sponges which are placed on opposite sides of the head and um, a conductive medium is placed and then you have a, a very low level of um, electrical stimulation that's imparted. And the goal here is, is different from TMS. TMS, you're actually trying to um, depolarize uh, axons, and I'll talk about that in a second. Whereas with TDCS, uh, the goal is more to change the excitability of the areas underneath of the electrodes. And then another, um, another device-based neuromodulatory therapy is called uh, transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation, uh, TVNS. And I'll talk about that um, in more detail. That's going to be the bulk of the talk. And this is an example of uh, actually a commercially available um, TVNS device that's out there. So um, a lot of these neuromodulatory devices really fall into the general concept of uh, electroceuticals. And uh, this term, electroceuticals, 
was really coined by um, folks out of, um, out of the pharmaceutical industry, you know, out of GSK. So GSK uh, specifically has uh, made a big push into the electroceutical, um, electroceutical market, and they have a, um, um, uh, a spin-off uh, company that I believe they've formed, um, and I'm sure other pharmaceutical companies uh, will, be, will be doing the same. In fact, I know they're doing the same um, uh, as, as pharma sort of moves to branch out not just from pharmacological therapies, but into neuro, neuromodulatory electrical therapies, device-based therapies as well. So neuromodulatory, um, non-invasive neuromodulatory techniques such as uh, TMS, TDCS, and TVNS apply electromagnetic fields to modulate peripheral and central nervous system activity. And the question is, can these techniques provide afferent input to induce neuroplasticity in the brain? So uh, TMS, uh, transcranial uh, magnetic stimulation, is, I believe, now approved, uh, FDA approved as a therapy for treatment-resistant depression. And uh, I'm sure uh, trials are ongoing for, um, for other applications as well. And basically, you have, this is um, uh, called a figure eight coil. So a figure eight magnetic coil. You basically induce a changing magnetic field, and when the magnetic field changes, it induces an electrical field. That electrical field then depolarizes axons from neurons in specific locations in the brain. And by specific, it's a pretty wide area that's uh, being affected by this technology, um, and that produces a firing. So, for example, um, if this is placed over the primary motor cortex, you can get you know, somebody's finger to start twitching. And this is one way that they usually start out in trying to stereotactically place this device um, on the patient. You know, if you place it over the occipital cortex as here, you can have little um, phonemes, little like, you know, bright, bright spots can go off in your eyes from this. Uh, interestingly, and I don't know why this is, by the way, just as a total aside, uh, you cannot get somebody to have uh, sensory tactile perception by placing it over the primary uh, somatosensory cortex. And I've talked to some people about that, and I'm not sure why that is, but I, I think there's still a lot of research to be done with uh, technology such as this and to better understand what exactly is going on. So uh, TDCS is uh, transcranial direct current stimulation. So this is subthreshold uh, modification of neuronal membrane excitability. So you're not actually depolarizing axons, you're not actually getting neuronal firing from this, but you're, you're making some neurons in specific um, uh, locations in the brain more or less likely to fire when other inputs come in. So you're changing this excitability of these uh, brain regions. So this is based on a constant electrical field, and you know, this has been used for more than 200 years, the concept of galvanization based on the experiments of Aldini in the 19th century um, Italy. So um, here's, uh, there's been um, a host of uh, trials. Uh, so this is with um, TDCS stimulation for modulating of a pain perception, of a, a perception, so QST perception in, in healthy volunteers, showing that there is a, a specificity of effect depending on where you apply TDCS and what part of the head, um, which I think is interesting. Uh, also, it's been applied clinically. So this was a study in uh, fibromyalgia published in uh, arthritis and rheumatism uh, by the Fregni lab, um, showing uh, improvement with uh, dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, DLPFC, TDCS, uh, compared to uh, TDCS, uh, say, applied at, on the motor cortex, M1, or with um, sham TDCS. 
So um, the other technique, and now I want to transition to um, talking about, is uh, transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation, or TVNS. And this is kind of the uh, non-invasive cousin of VNS, or vagus nerve stimulation, um, which basically is a pacemaker-like device that's uh, implanted uh, in the body and has a lead that comes out and coils around the vagus nerve in the carotid sheath, the cervical vagus nerve in the carotid sheath. And um, VNS, vagus nerve stimulation, has been a therapy that's been around for quite some time, I would say, I think in the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s, and uh, was originally developed and applied for um, intractable epilepsy as an anticonvulsant, which, interestingly enough, a lot of the drugs that we use for chronic pain are anticonvulsants. But so this was a therapy, this was a device therapy that was developed for, um, uh, for epilepsy, and it just so happened that some of the patients that had epilepsy also had depression, and they also had a migraine. And so what um, some of these uh, earlier studies found is that not only were, was this effective for reducing um, uh, the symptoms of uh, epilepsy, but was also effective in reducing migraines and uh, treating depression. And so there was a time that vagus nerve stimulation was also uh, an FDA-approved uh, technique for treatment-resistant depression. And um, there's been some back and forth right now. I think some of them have been pulled back, and there's some ongoing uh, large-scale clinical trials right now to see if it'll be um, accepted again for um, treatment-resistant depression for some political reasons. But, um, but it is approved, um, and uh, TVNS um, is the transcutaneous version of vagus nerve stimulation that I'll, I'll talk about in a little more detail. So uh, the vagus nerve is involved in the regulation of multiple visceral organs, and vagus nerve stimulation, VNS, has uh, shown promising results uh, for migraine, as uh, some clinical studies have shown. So the vagus uh, inputs to a, um, a nucleus in the medulla called the nucleus tractus solitarius, the NTS, which then projects to locus ceruleus in the pons and raphe nuclei, which um, providing widespread noradrenergic. So locus ceruleus is the source of noradrenaline in the brain, noradrenergic input, and uh, raphe nuclei are the source of serotonergic innervation to the cortex, serotonergic input. Um, and so uh, the idea is that um, vagus nerve stimulation can modulate um, noradrenergic and serotonergic influence in the brain by, by this uh, stimulation. So, and this can then serve to modulate uh, cortical excitability via locus ceruleus and raphe pathways, and this is what might be important for migraine relief. At least that's one of the hypotheses. However, as I said, VNS is an invasive procedure associated with significant side effects and the development and optimization of alternative non-invasive techniques for uh, vagal modulation is of critical importance. So um, the vagus nerve, as it goes through the neck, actually has both afferent and efferent uh, pathways. So you know, you're, it's, it's controlling, central control of the heart, of um, various uh, visceral organs, and also it's sensing um, different, um, different effects in those organs in the thorax and passing that information up to the brain. So that's the afferent arm of it. So when, when um, therapists do vagus nerve stimulation, you really want to be targeting more of the afferent branches. And it's the efferent branches that produce most of the side effects. So vagus nerve stimulation, for example, is always done on the left side not on the right side, and that's because it's the right vagus that synapses in the sinoatrial node and can have um, effects on heart rate, which is something you want to avoid in a lot of these patients. 
whereas uh, the left vagus nerve um, actually goes down to the AV node, the, the atrioventricular node of the heart, and doesn't have as uh, broad-based effects on heart rate. So um, there's also the other, the other issue is there's a, um, the current laryngeal nerve, which then follows up from the vagus nerve and goes up to, um, to innervate the larynx. And so a lot of times, if the stimulation is set too high, uh, patients can have hoarseness. That's another very common sort of side effect from this because of this recurrent laryngeal nerve. So for these reasons, plus the morbidity associated with the surgery itself, um, it's thought to be a good idea to try to develop a, um, a non-invasive or a minimally invasive version of uh, vagus nerve stimulation. And the interesting thing is that there's a branch of the vagus nerve that actually exits out to the ear, the uh, auricular branch of the vagus nerve, the ABVN, uh, sometimes called Arnold's nerve. And so this is an um, um, anatomical dissection study back in uh, 2002 that showed, that looked at innervation of the human oracle that showed it's, it's this portion of the, the, the simba concha. Um, this is called the simba concha of the ear. This is the cavum concha of the ear. So the simba concha is the most consistently innervated uh, portion of the ear by the, uh, the vagus nerve, the ABVN, the auricular branch of the vagus nerve. And so a lot of the, um, uh, the, the transcutaneous VNS therapies, the TVNS therapies that have been out there have targeted this specific location um, in the ear. So um, we've been playing around with this a little bit. In, um, I, I work at a neuroimaging center, a brain imaging center, and so uh, we've been playing around with uh, developing TVNS techniques and even trying to optimize them. And uh, one thing we've been playing around with is to gate the TVNS input to the respiratory rhythm, so something called respiratory gated auricular vagal afferent nerve stimulation, or the acronym is RAVENS. Um, so interestingly, you know, why, why are we doing this? You know, interestingly, the brainstem uh, vagal input output system, which is consistent of, with the NTS, the nucleus tractus, and the nucleus ambiguous, which is the primary premotor nucleus of the vagus. So this is the, it's also in the medulla, actually quite close to the NTS, but this is the outflow. This controls the outflow of the vagus nerve to the heart, particularly. And this operates in tune with respiration. So there's uh, input that comes up from the, uh, the organs, the, the lungs and the heart, into the NTS. You know, that's uh, um, going to be directed based on the respiratory cycle. And there's also neurons in the medulla which send um, influence to nucleus ambiguous and NTS in tune with respiration. Specifically during the inhalatory cycle, there is inhibitory input that comes to the nucleus ambiguous. Um, and that is what causes what's called um, uh, respiratory sinus arrhythmia, or RSA. So this is a, a very common uh, physiological phenomenon where every time we breathe in, our heart rate actually speeds up and every time we breathe out, our heart rate slows down. And this is because of this uh, inhibitory influence to the nucleus ambiguous during, um, during inspiration, right? Because nucleus ambiguous sends the vagus nerve to the heart. The vagus nerve is parasympathetic. It slows down the heart. So if you inhibit that during inspiration, your heart rate will go up. And this is the mechanism of respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And so this is why we, we thought it might be a good thing um, to provide uh, transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation input uh, in tune with the respiratory cycle and specifically during expiration. So Ravens might optimize TVNS by, number one, 
stimulating during refractory periods in NTS processing, i.e. reduced baroreceptor lung stretch receptor input, and also input from um, higher uh, respiratory centers in the brain, and also by limiting stimulus habituation. So if you keep just like stimulating somebody over and over again, the neurons themselves will habituate. They won't respond the same way as they would you know, on first stimulation. And so can we avoid some of these uh, habituation effects by having the stimulation be um, sort of regular, but you know, somewhat irregular based on the respiratory cycle of the patient? So, and this is what we've developed. So we basically have a closed loop system where uh, we are monitoring the respiratory rate of the patient. Um, and then there's logic that's built into the, um, to the computer interface that senses where the subject is in their respiration. And when we know they're in their exhalatory or expiratory cycle, that's when we provide, um, we open up a gate and the stimulation can then pass to the ear for uh, TVNS gated to the respiratory cycle. So we've developed this as a prototype and have um, tested it in a few studies, uh, one of which I'll go through with you in a bit. And I've, I've talked about this already, the circuitry involved with um, up and down uh, regulation of these brainstem centers. So one of our first study with this was we targeted uh, chronic pelvic pain. And so this was a, uh, not a brain imaging study, but a QST outcome study where uh, we looked at um, such outcomes as uh, pressure pain rating and temporal summation. And we also were tracking uh, sort of uh, perception and behavioral outcomes such as anxiety ratings in these patients. And interestingly, we found that compared to uh, stimulation at a, at a non-vagus nerve stimulation site, so here we chose the earlobe, which is not innervated by the vagus nerve at all as our control for this study. Uh, compared to stimulation at, over the earlobe, uh, there was improvement in um, reduction after the therapy, both during, immediately after the therapy, this is the post blocks, and um, 15 minutes after the therapy for pressure pain rating, uh, but also for uh, temporal summation, particularly uh, during the application of the stimulation itself. And this is a temporal summation to pain with repeated applications of, a, of a external pain, an experimental pain. And also, interestingly enough, we got really nice results with anxiety, which, you know, when I talk to uh, my colleagues who are studying depression, say, well, yeah, I mean, that's, that makes a lot of sense because that's what um, uh, vagus nerve stimulation was, you know, originally FDA approved for, was for treatment-resistant depression. So the fact that you can have these beneficial effects on mood uh, is also a really nice, nice finding for this as well. Um, so we've applied it most recently um, to study uh, the mechanisms of, um, of TVNS and of Ravens in, uh, in migraine. So migraine is a uh, neurovascular uh, headache pain disorder. So it's got both a sort of a neuropathic and visceral pain component to it, mainly because of the uh, involvement of the, uh, the vessels of the dura. And uh, it's known that there is uh, pain with activation and sensitization of the trigeminovascular pathway uh, through the brainstem. So um, this is uh, the pathway. There's a really nice review on it that just came out last year. And uh, this right here is the spinal trigeminal nucleus, SPV, which is uh, mainly located in the medulla and lower pons. And you can see that there's input here from the uh, trigeminal nerve sensory areas, such as uh, the head or the forehead, but also vessels um, along the dura. And so all that input basically 
comes regulated over here in the spinal trigeminal nucleus. And so the idea is that can we regulate spinal trigeminal nuclear um, activity, modulate it via connection from NTS, nucleus tractus solitarius, with TVNS. So migraine is a fairly common disorder. It affects 15% uh, of the population, roughly. And migraine headaches, uh, importantly, are recurrent, typically episodic, with relatively uh, symptom-free periods between such ictal events. Those are called ictal events. So when you study migraine patients between these events, that's called interictal migraine. Uh, migraine patients show hyperalgesia and allodynia and impaired habituation, even during this interictal phase between attacks. Migraine neuroimaging, brain imaging studies, uh, have assessed altered neural processing, such as impaired habituation, for example, and have typically used uh, ERP, evoked, evoked potentials, so EEG techniques, focusing on the cortical responses. So one nice thing with functional MRI is that uh, we can get at some of these deeper responses, and that's what I'm about to show you. So there's increased gain or amplification of activity from the primary synapse in the brainstem, uh, so spinal trigeminal nucleus, to cortical, subcortical brain regions. And this, is, this was our hypothesis, and this has not yet been assessed uh, with migraine. So first of all, let's talk about TVNS for the treatment of chronic migraine. Uh, really nice study came out recently um, that I think was sponsored by, the, um, by one of the developers of the TVNS devices, uh, a company called Serbomed, that I was not involved in and I'm not involved in. And uh, they published a study with migraine. Um, using this device for migraine as a uh, clinical trial. And this, this to me is actually very interesting, is that they devised this study as a dose-response study. So they had two different forms of TVNS stimulation, one at 1 hertz stimulation and one at 25 hertz stimulation. And I know, just from talking to them at conferences, that they were using this as a dose-response study, and they were looking at 25 hertz stimulation as the, uh, as the, the effective uh, stimulatory uh, frequency. But they found just the opposite. They found that it was actually one hertz stimulation that improved uh, migraine you know, headache days the most, um, even more so than uh, 25 hertz stimulation, which I think is very interesting and I think has something to do with this idea of uh, habituation. And so if you're, if you're um, slamming the system you know, in the medulla with 25 hertz direct stimulation and you're not giving it any sort of a break, that might lead to worse effects than sort of much kind of like slower uh, stimulation frequencies such as 1 hertz where you're sort of given a neuron's time to uh, recover from the stimulation. That's my interpretation of it. I don't know, um, I don't think they know exactly why this came out this way. This was a clinical trial. And, and yeah, and so what they found is, um, first of all, nice adherence, but I think they work with the patients on this. So one really tricky thing with any neuromodulatory therapy is that the goal was to do a lot of these therapies not in the office, but have a device that so, a so-called wearable that uh, patients can take home with them so they don't have to come into the clinic uh, you know, to be treated you know, twice a week, three times a week, five times a week. And that's, I think, where a lot of the field is really going is to try to improve um, battery technology and some of these things in order to have a device that patients can really take home with them. Now, you wouldn't be able to do this with uh, TMS, right, transcutaneous magnetic stimulation. It's just we don't have uh, portable devices for magnetic stimulation you know, through the through the cranium. But I think for something like VNS and TVNS, it is, it is feasible and possible. And so they did this, and they did a training period. Um, they, so first of all, three out of 46 patients were dropped due to side effects from the TVNS 
this they reported as a uh, ulceration of the skin, which uh, after I think better training and using a different gel, they were able to solve. So uh, theoretically, this is not this would not be an ongoing problem for this technology, and they they found 85% adherence, which is I think pretty good for a device that you know you give to a patient and you ask them to take home with them. So the effect of auricular TVNS was comparable to the effects of uh, topiramate and um, uh, Botox, basically, uh, versus placebo. So compared to pharmacological effects, TVNS effects were you know, on the same order and comparable with uh, likely much fewer side effects. It is, it is not clear why the 1 hertz stimulation was more effective than a 25 hertz stimulation. I think this is going to recover um, mechanistic studies to try to understand the mechanism uh, behind therapies like this which is kind of where I operate as a brain imager. So what we, div what we did is we devised a study with um, looking at uh, processing along the trigeminal uh, sensory pathway by having an air puff device that stimulates the forehead and doing this air puff stimulation during brain imaging with functional MRI before and after um, randomization order of either expiratory ravens or a sham condition where the electrodes are still in place but there's no current that's actually being passed. And so this was repeated twice. It's to counterbalance the order between a sham and an E-Ravens condition with a washout period in between of approximately 20 minutes. And then they came, and then uh, there was one more scan that we did, which was inspiratory Ravens as a comparison. So in order to look at brain response to the stimulation and compare the inspiratory stimulation to the expiratory stimulation. So first of all, the um, results of the air puff stimulation, the trigeminal sensory pathway, this was done with a uh, block design functional MRI experiment. Uh, we had 16 interictoral migraine patients with attacks ranging from 2 to 15 attacks per month. And we had 16 age and uh, sex-matched uh, healthy controls um, as well in the study. So the air puff stimulation was done at 5 hertz. We wanted something fast enough to lead to a uh, potential amplification or a summation of an effect from previous trials. This was deemed to be important. And uh, importantly, we scanned with a relatively small uh, voxel size because it's brainstem imaging is actually quite difficult. And these nuclei are very small, much smaller than what you see in the cortex and subcortically in the brain. So there were some technical developments around that that I'm not going to go into here. Um, so we targeted the V1 subdivision of the trigeminal nerve, the otherwise known as the ophthalmic subdivision of the nerve. And uh, this basically um, synapses on the um, spinal trigeminal nucleus, the uh, uh, cranial portion of this nucleus. As, as I said before, it sort of branches from the medulla up into the pons. So uh, the... Um, Methods then were, so here we looked at just brain response to the TVNS stimulation, to the Raven stimulation. So here we did 30 hertz uh, stimulation with 450 uh, microsecond pulse width and a stimulus intensity which was uh, per set match in all the subjects to be moderately strong but not painful. And um, we, we did specific uh, analysis approaches for brainstem imaging for this technique. And we looked at both brain response to the stimulation, but also brain connectivity response from the areas that were activating in response to the stimulation. So we looked at also then contrasting the air puff stimulation before and after the Ravens. 
And here we found that uh, the activation uh, in response to the air puff stimulation was in uh, several areas, including the posterior insula, um, as well as S2, secondary somatosensory cortex uh, in the brain, and also the um, hypothalamus, which was interesting to see that being activated in these, uh, in, in these subjects. And this was a group effect. So here there was actually no difference between migraine and healthy control subjects. Um, and so this is the brain response in spinal trigeminal nucleus and approximately the level that you see it in the brainstem for this activation activity. This is the oralis uh, subdivision of the spinal trigeminal nucleus. And interestingly, we found that activity in this nucleus was dependent on interictal phase. So the interictal phase is basically a measure of how close the patients were to their previous attack and their next attack. So we basically asked them, you know, when was your last attack when we scanned them? And then we followed up with them to see when their next attack would happen. And we calculated this interictal phase index to see where the subjects were in their cycle of attack and no attack. And we found that the brainstem response was actually correlating, was sensitive to their interictal phase. So 100 means they're very close to having their next attack, and zero means they're just after their previous attack. And what we found is that the, the closer they are to their next attack, the greater the activation is in this, in this uh, brainstem nucleus, which was um, really interesting. It's a very interesting finding, kind of tying this uh, uh, brain activation, this functional MRI outcome to, uh, the, the clinical, to a, a clinical metric in these migraine patients. So while we didn't find any differences in gross activation patterns to the stimulation, we, we found something really interesting, which was a difference in amplification ratio. So when we looked at how much activity there was in spinal trigeminal nucleus relative to the amount of activity in cortical regions, cortical and subcortical regions, we found this amplification specifically for the insular cortex and for the hypothalamus, meaning that information that's being processed by the spinal trigeminal nucleus in the brainstem gets amplified when it goes up into the cortex or into the hypothalamus. And this was uh, much more so for migraine patients than healthy controls and likely speaks to the sort of the hyperexcitability, the cortical excitability that's been uh, noted with EEG studies uh, in migraine patients. So we also then looked at um, we also then looked at not just the activation and the amount of amplification ratio, but we also looked at habituation. So this is the idea that again that um, brain response will decrease the more times that you stimulate a certain region. And what we found is that in healthy controls there was really nice habituation. These are the white circles over the course of the experiment. So the more sort of blocks that you gave them, the more you stimulated them the less the activation was in the um, posterior insula. These are the white circles. And this was not the case for migraine patients. In migraine patients, they don't really show this habituation. Even by the time you stimulate the seventh time, you know, eighth time, ninth, tenth, eleventh time, you still get this nice activation in the posterior insula in these patients, something you don't see in healthy controls. We also found a linkage between the habituation and the amplification. So these two phenomenon were linked. The more you amplify the effect from the brainstem center in the um, posterior insula, the greater the, the reduction in habituation, the more you reduce in your habituation. And so this, uh, this data was actually recently published in cephalalgia. So you can go there for a little more detail. And then now we looked at the brain response to the TVNS, the Raven stimulation. And um, here what we found is activity was really focused 
on, a, um, on this area in the Ponto Medullary Junction over here. This is kind of the level. And this area that showed activity was, I would argue, consistent with the nucleus tractus solitarius. So this is a really nice um, corroboration in human uh, neuroimaging data from something we might know from animal studies about what is targeted by stimulating uh, the vagus nerve and vagal afferent, specifically in the ear. So, I mean, the question is there, you know, if, okay, there's this branch of the vagus nerve that goes out to the ear, are you really still activating nucleus tractus solitarius as you would be by coiling a wire around the vagus nerve in the neck? And so I, I would argue that you are, that we have evidence here that shows that you have activation of NTS even um, with stimulating um, this auricular branch of the vagus nerve. And interestingly, this was much more so for expiratory ravens than for inspiratory ravens, which I thought was really interesting. I'm not sure exactly why, why this was, um, but it's much more pronounced. I mean, maybe there's a lot of inhibitory influence to the NTS, so much so that you actually don't activate when these pulses are going over during the inspiratory phase, and the current ther therapeutic approaches are sort of ignoring that. They're just stimulating, 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 and you know, sometimes uh, the information is getting through, such as during expiration, and sometimes it's not. You know, maybe it's not getting through when, it, when the information uh, passes over during inspiration. That's possible. So, um, so we have um, this sort of proof of concept that there's, uh, first of all, there's different uh, brainstem areas that are activated when you're stimulating the ear versus when you're stimulating the forehead with the air puff stimulation. So this is more, much more consistent with uh, SP5 nucleus. Um, whereas when you stimulate the uh, Simba Concha, it's much more consistent with nucleus tractus solitarius from our known sort of anatomy analysis. And we also looked at connectivity. So how does that area in the brainstem then link to other areas in the brain, uh, cortical and subcortical areas? And what we found is that during the um, uh, E-ravens, during the expiratory raven stimulation, we see an increase in connectivity from this area that's being activated specifically to the anterior insula and to the cingulate, um, pre-SMA, part, part of the cortex. And this connectivity, this increase in connectivity, was uh, much more so seen um, when the subjects were soon after their previous attack as opposed to getting closer to their next attack. So again, there's a very nice correlation with interictal phase and this connectivity change. So the closer they get to their next attack, this connectivity drops. So information in SP5 is amplified, that's what I showed you before, but the connectivity between NTS and these higher cortical areas is dropping for an as yet unknown, unknown reason. But it's an interesting phenomenon, and to me suggests that clinically, if we were to target this therapy for migraine patients, you might be best off targeting this therapy soon after um, their previous attack, when they've just recovered from their last attack and the connectivity is still high, hoping to keep them at this higher level um, over the course of therapy because as this drops closer to their next attack, they're getting closer and closer to their next migraine attack. So if we can keep them from dropping this connectivity, if we can keep them at this higher level, maybe we're going to be better off in doing that. So then we looked at um, air puff stimulation before and after Ravens, and we found that there was, after immediately after the Raven stimulation, trigeminal sensory processing now starts to incorporate these nuclei, such as uh, nucleus raphicentralis and locus ceruleus, which are the known serotonergic and noradrenergic uh, nuclei in the brain. 
So this is a really interesting finding, suggesting that you that this therapy, uh, at least immediately right after the stimulation, can start to incorporate these neuromodulatory pathways in the brain. So uh, in conclusion, I'm going to wrap this up. Brainstem functional neuri response is separable for different cranial nerve-targeted regions. Trigeminal nerve stimulation will activate SP5, whereas ABVN stimulation will activate NTS. You know, this was a relatively large group size, and what we're trying to do now is follow up these studies at higher fields of functional MRI, where we can get much more precise activity uh, in the brainstem, potentially even in single subjects. So eventually, we'd like to get to the point that we can bring in a single migraine patient, evaluate them at 7T high-field functional MRI imaging with these uh, technologies, and maybe try to predict whether this person is going to be amenable to the therapy. So brainstem uh, fMRI activation and cortical connectivity is linked with clinically relevant parameters for migraine. And Ravens targets NTS, modulates trigeminal sensory response in noradrenergic and serotonergic brainstem nuclei. So thanks a lot for your attention. I just wanted to acknowledge. Thank you. I know there was a lot of neuroscience there at the end. Thanks for sticking with me. Um, <laughs> So I just definitely want to acknowledge some of my collaborators, both at the Martino Center and uh, other institutions that helped with, uh, with this study and the work that we're doing uh, looking at um, uh, neuromodulatory therapies with uh, brain functional neuroimaging. Thank you.